Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with angry denunciations of the Saudi Crown Prince coming from Senate and House leaders frustrated with MBS's insulting rejection of Biden's ill-advised entreaties and his embrace of Putin in facilitating the rise of the price of oil to help finance Putin's aggression in Ukraine and help bring back Trump to the White House. Joining us is Hossein Askari, the Iran Professor Emeritus of International Business and International Affairs at George Washington University, where he served as Chairman of the International Business Department and as Director of the Institute of Global Management and Research. He served for two and a half years on the Executive Board of the International Monetary Fund and was a Special Advisor to the Minister of Finance of Saudi Arabia. And during 1990 and 1991, He was asked by the governments of Iran and Saudi Arabia to act as an intermediary to restore diplomatic relations. And in 1992, he was asked by the Emir of Kuwait to mediate with Iran. Then we'll look into what options the U.S. has in retaliating against MBS's perfidy and the treachery of his allies in the U.S., such as the Trump family and the many financial institutions, Washington officials and think tanks on the Saudi payroll. Joining us is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. He's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. His latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. And we'll discuss how the U.S. fought two wars against Iraq to protect the Saudi regime, which has now aligned itself with Russia and China and is financing Trump's comeback while jacking up the price of gas to hurt the Democrats in the election a month away. Then finally, we will speak with a war correspondent just back from Kiev, who is soon to return to Ukraine and speak with Simon Schuster a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and Foreign Policy, and his latest article at Time is Inside the Ukrainian Counter-Strike That Turned the Tide of the War, and we will discuss the attack on Putin's signature bridge on his birthday and his vicious retaliation against Ukrainian civilians and infrastructure. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Hossein Askari, who is the Iran Professor Emeritus of International Business and International Affairs at George Washington University, where he has served as Chairman of the International Business Department and as Director of the Institute of Global Management and Research. He served for two and a half years on the Executive Board of the International Monetary Fund 
and was a special advisor to the Minister of Finance of Saudi Arabia. And during 1990-1991, he was asked by the governments of Iran and Saudi Arabia to act as an intermediary to restore diplomatic relations. And in 1992, he was asked by the Emir of Kuwait to mediate with Iran. Welcome to Background Briefing, Hossein Askari. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of the what appears to be a sort of de facto alliance between Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, uh, now Prime Minister of Saudi Arabia, soon to be king, I imagine, and Vladimir Putin? Many suggest that uh, in many ways... He's a great admirer. MBS is a great admirer of Putin, who's maybe something of a mentor. But OPEC plus cutting production by 2 million barrels a day to drive up the price of gas here in the United States ahead of an, a critical election has obviously got a lot of Democratic politicians infuriated. So let's begin with the questions about that relationship. Is it your understanding, Hossein, that MBS is an admirer of Putin's? Well, I think MBS himself is an autocrat, and he came to power in a very, how shall I say, surreptitious way himself. And so uh, he obviously looks up to uh, Mr. Putin as a person who has done this for many, many years, and he hopes to learn from Putin. I don't know to what extent he's an admirer, but I think he's much more of a, of a, of a person that he would like to copy than somebody like, let's say, a Mr. Biden um, or, or mistrust in England. I think this is the type of person that he would like to be. So in that sense, I guess, yes, I would say he's an admirer. Or a protege. You're suggesting he's Putin's a sort of a mentor. Exactly. I think indirectly he's a mentor. And I think that, that MBS uh, has a big time agenda that he wants to carry out in Saudi Arabia. And I think why he has to learn from Putin is that he basically usurped the throne. I mean, his father uh, appointed him. Uh, They upended the long history of how Saudi kings and how Saudi, you know, crown princes came to power. They upended that. And so he is, I believe, I I really believe that he is still afraid of members of the royal family uh, who might try to overthrow him because he really should not be in that position. So, Well, he, the person who helped him get in that position was none other than Donald Trump because you recall that he MBS was a deputy prime minister and he leapfrogged over Prince Naif, who clearly was a, a favorite of Washington's. And it was President Trump who championed uh, him and also made his first visit to Saudi Arabia. So is that a key relationship here in this situation? I actually see it slightly differently. I think that the President Trump was very, very important in developing that relationship. But I think it was really Jared Kushner in my book that really developed that relationship. And I believe, and of course, I have no proof, but I believe Jared Kushner leaked top secret information to him because there were members of the royal family who might have been plotting to overthrow him uh, in his ambition to put him aside. And I think Jared Kushner uh, revealed that to him. That's, that's my belief. It is purely conjecture, but I think that uh, I actually wrote and I predicted at the time that when um, Mr. Trump steps down 
or if he's not re-elected, whichever, is that uh, Jared Kushner will get a big reward, which he did get from MBS, namely $2.5 billion invested in a company in an arena area in which uh, Jared Kushner has no experience whatsoever, and he overruled all of his advisors to do that. So I think he owes a lot to Jared Kushner why he's there. Well, that's a bit ironic, isn't it? I mean, uh, here you have Democratic senators and uh, the majority leader of the, of the Senate absolutely fuming and trying to f- come up with some punishment for MBS, along with members of Congress. And uh, you've got Jared Kushner, you know, with a big sm- smirk on his face with $2.5 billion in his pocket. I mean, what's happening with America? Why are we allowing this illegitimate young crown prince to manipulate our politics to literally... I mean, isn't it logical to assume or saying that what's happening here is that MBS and Putin are hurting the Democrats and helping bring back Trump, who they clearly prefer? I think they're absolutely uh, you know, trying to do that. That is, uh, underlies what they have been doing. That, you know, With that, I would... 100% agree with you, but I think that what has happened, you you also ask what is happening to America. Well, you know, America has done this to itself, if I may say that very bluntly. Uh, what MBS has done, he has uh, engaged in a war using American weapons and American bombs, which we have sold him, of course, and uh, we have given him intelligence. We have refueled his planes that he has caused which some people say the biggest human catastrophe so far in this century uh, in uh, in Yemen. And we have done very little about it. And when even with Mr. Uh, Bashoghi's killing, which was a brutal thing, which was heinous crime, Mr. Biden still has not revealed the full details uh, that people have been clamoring for. And so, uh, you know, everyone has a lot to blame. And I think that Uh, We have a lot to learn from good parents because good parents would tell you that you have to put an end to things right at the beginning. You don't let things drag on. And I think we have let Saudi Arabia lead us by the nose. And and now we're going to be paying the the price of it. Well, my understanding is that in terms of the full accounting of what happened to Hashoji at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, that they actually, not only did they chop up his body, they sent his head back to MBS as a uh, trophy. Is that is that something you understand? I, uh, I really don't know that one, but uh, what I had heard was almost the same as yours, that in fact, what they did, they, um, they chopped him up before he was even dead. Uh, it was very, very gruesome. Now, what you just mentioned would fit the bill in something else, uh, very much like Putin, because I can't tell you which, who this was and how it was done. But Russia um, killed someone and they wanted to send somebody a message. I'm sorry, uh, they killed him and they cut off his vital parts, put it in his mouth and they sent the head to that person. So this is a Russian way of doing things. So. I'm not surprised by what you say. This could have been done uh, at the order of MBS, too. 
And I believe that Russian assassination happened in the Gulf, didn't it? Uh, yes, I, I better not go too much detail okay. about that because I've, I've, I've said I wouldn't. I mean, somebody told me that uh, why I was told that story is that the Russians are very brutal and they send their message very clearly and, I, and they want people not to mess with them. And I think this was what, you know, MBS was maybe following. So in that sense, Putin, it would make sense what you said much earlier, that he is truly a mentor to MBS. Right. Well, my, my understanding is that that team, that Russian team that did that horrible assassination, became the inspiration for MBS to form the Tiger Squad that not only murdered and dismembered Shoji, they also tried to kill former intelligence head Saad al-Jabri in Canada, right? And they yes. were stopped by Canadian authorities. Yes, that, uh, that is the case. But again, uh, I have learned, you know, this not directly from you, and I really appreciate that. And I think that it makes a great deal of sense what, in fact, MBS has been doing. I think they probably have much closer contacts between them than, than at least, of course, I'm aware of, is that he's following uh, Mr. Putin, uh, his uh, modus operandus to the T. And, and I think this makes all a lot of sense now. It fills in a lot of gaps in my education. Right, but in the broader geopolitical moment that we're in, where we have a war raging in Europe, uh, Hussein, MBS is supporting Putin and enable him to make money to finance this war against Ukraine, which the U.S. is on the other side of. So what kind of an ally is uh, MBS? And this is the question that a lot of senators and congressmen are asking. But they're asking the question with a great deal of frustration. So my question to you is, what can the U.S. do about MBS? Well, I tell you, uh, I will answer that question, if I may, in one second. But first, I want to say that uh, the, the head of the U.S. Senate saying these type of things, it really is kind of, for me, it's crocodile tears. Namely, they've done nothing with MBS. They've let things go on. And now, all of a sudden, when the election is at stake, they're now worried about what MBS is doing. There are things that could have been done and still can be done to MBS. Number one, I suggested a number of months ago that uh, the United States should send a very respected person, a heavyweight, to Saudi Arabia with a secret message. And, you know, someone like Secretary Cohen, former Secretary Cohen, the Secretary of Defense, who's respected, to go to a place like Saudi Arabia and, in fact, tell them, if you do not do X, Y, and Z, we will no longer sell you any munitions, any spare parts for all the equipment that you have. We will no longer train your personnel. We will no longer refuel your planes. We will no longer, most important, give you any of the intelligence that may be threatening to your rule. I think that would put the fear of God, not just in MBS, but in the whole Al Saud family, because if this was done, they cannot overnight transfer to Russian, Chinese, whatever technology. They're stuck. They would become naked. I think if this message was sent, you will get a very, very fast reaction. There's a second thing. 
we may not like the regime in Tehran, but you know, one of the things is that the sanctions on Iran, the oil and gas sanctions, the energy sector sanctions on Iran, has what has enabled Putin to do what he's done and uh, to basically blackmail Europe and the world with, uh, with energy needs. Iran wanted to, and I must say this everywhere that I go, Iran wanted to export gas, natural gas, to the United States. It invited the Bechtel Corporation to Iran in the mid-90s to look at the feasibilities. And what happened was Mr. Clinton imposed uh, the well-known sanctions, ILSA, the Iran-Libya Sanctions Act, which prohibited investment and work on Iranian oil and gas industry. So anyway, Iranian natural gas was, has been cut off. It has not been developed. But today, if the oil embargo was lifted on Iran, Iran within one maximum two months could increase its export by, by one and a half million barrels a day. So if we really want to do Mr. Uh, you know, Mr. MBS in, this is what we would do. Because if we do this with Iran, this will threaten MBS again on another score, and he will not have the power that he has within OPEC. And we can put restrictions on Iran so that this money is not in a, used in a way that we don't think it should be used. So there are a number of things that we can do, but it's just having the audacity to do it. And if I may just make one final point, the reason why we don't do it is very simple. Saudi Arabia has many supporters in the United States in the form of American companies, in the form of American financial institutions, in the form of lobbyists, in the form of entities that depend on Saudi Arabia. And of course, you go to Mr. Jared Kushner, the former Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin. These people all take money from Saudi Arabia. They do lobbying for Saudi Arabia. And so the US Congress may talk, but if they try to do something, there's going to be an attack from lobbyists that they will pull back. So. That's why we're in the mess we're in. But I can't see the U.S. doing a deal with Iran at the moment when the Iranian government is is under assault from its own people, particularly the young people. I mean, you've got junior high and high school girls that are so brave that are protesting this government and questioning its legitimacy and, and wanting and fighting for democracy. This is hardly the time to make a deal with Iran, surely, or with the, the Khomeini regime. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. One has to respect what these young people are doing, and we should be supporting their freedom. But, you know, we could have done something earlier. Now I would agree with you 100%. And I think it's shameful what the government of Iran is doing to these younger people. They should give them the freedom to be able to dress the way that they want. They need to breathe. They need to have some freedom. But at the same time, I'm saying there are avenues, I, I, I realize. But once you put yourself in a box, you don't have all the options that you should have had. We have been doing this for so long, and I think that we could have way before this, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, managed to get the mullahs in Iran and the revolution regards to be more reasonable, to change their policies, if we'd given them certain incentives, but we never gave them those incentives to change. And so besides the box we're in, 
there's another problem that's looming. Iran, by the way, has totally cozied up to Russia and to China. And so I would just add more fuel to the point that you made. I wonder if, in fact, we wanted to lift certain sanctions, what Iran would do not to offend Russia, because they rely on Russia for a great deal of of their uh, of their self-defense in uh, in uh, in you know in having anti-aircraft uh, batteries and in other military equipment because they cannot get it from anywhere else. So it's sure, and they're and they're selling drones to Russia that are being used in, against the Ukrainians. Shameful. I totally agree with you. But uh, so we have driven them into the arms of Russia. So. What I guess I was trying to suggest is something that could have been done earlier, but now clearly is not the time. But uh, but I really go back to what I said at the top there, namely sending somebody like former Secretary Cohen with a tough message, no no sweet words, with a tough message. I think it would. I really believe it would work, but uh, at the same time, I uh, wonder if anyone at the White House. And even the leader of the U.S. Senate has the, the courage to stand up to the lobbyists that, in fact, will descend on them if they, in fact, put MBS in the corner. So just in closing, Hossein Askari, is there anybody left within the House of Al-Saud, which is huge? There's thousands of princes. And my understanding is a lot of them hate MBS because he is illegitimate. He's brutal. Uh, he's jailed many of them, and confiscated their money. I mean, they're, they're obviously a imp- lot imprisoned and then being terrorized and intimidated. But is there any chance of an internal coup from the royal family? I, I believe, I've always believed there is, but I think that a lot of people are scared because I think, again, I could be totally wrong, and please understand this, my, my conjecture is that, in fact, Jared Kushner helped MBS to stay in power. And so they're afraid because U.S. intelligence is very, very good in Saudi Arabia. They're scared to do anything, to make any move until the U.S. intelligence, they can be assured that they're not going to be exposed and be put in jail or much worse, beheaded uh, by MBS. So I think you have a mess going on. And uh, Biden has to be a little bit more forceful, send very strong messages that uh, you know, if they in fact do want to have a coup, a coup, there are there are princes that they could approach, but they've got to be assured that they're going to stick with the backing of them. And I don't know if they can be assured by Mr. Biden. Right, but Gina Haspel, when she was head of the CIA, she went public with the CIA's knowledge that Mohammed bin Salman had directed the assassination and dismemberment of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and that infuriated Trump and Jared Kushner. So presumably, at least in that instance, it looks as if the U.S. has the intelligence against MBS. Oh, I totally agree. I think U.S. has not just that intelligence. I tell you, another area of intelligence that would hurt them is the U.S. knows exactly how much money all of them have around the world. And if that was exposed, this that would also ruin their legitimacy because, um, you know, I mean, Saudi Arabia has no constitution. It says that the Quran is their constitution and the way that they live 
and the way that they take oil money, which is not theirs. In If you look at Islam, what Islam preaches, it's not theirs. It belongs to the people. What they're doing is actually committing the worst crimes that they can in their own religion. And, they have, and I think if they, the amount of money that they have parked abroad is actually disclosed, that would really harm them a great deal too. Well, Hussein Askari, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Hussein Askari, who is the Iran Professor Emeritus of International Business and International Affairs at George Washington University, where he has served as Chairman of the International Business Department and as Director of the Institute of Global Management and Research. He served for two and a half years on the Executive Board of the International Monetary Fund and was a Special Advisor to the Minister of Finance of Saudi Arabia. And during 1990 and 1991, he was asked by the governments of Iran and Saudi Arabia to act as an intermediary to restore diplomatic relations. And in 1992, he was asked by the Emir of Kuwait to mediate with Iran. We're going to be station breaking back, looking into what options the U.S. has in retaliating against MBS's perfidy and the treachery of his allies in the U.S., such as the Trump family and the many financial institutions, Washington officials and think tanks on the Saudi payroll. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. And he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book is The Fourth Man, the hunt for a KGB spy at the top of the CIA, and the rise of Putin's Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Baer. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And since you, uh, soon after you left the CIA, you apparently went through all their uh, non-classified open sources that you could publish, uh, wrote the book about Saudi Arabia, Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. We know that uh, Gina Haspel who you know well, who was the head of the CIA at the time of the Ashoji murder, she came out with a report that clearly uh, pended on MBS, which infuriated Jared Kushner and Donald Trump. But now that MBS has tipped his hand and has shown that he's really in alliance with Putin and with China for that matter, and he's completely defying the United States and after... Biden went over there hat in hand and did his fist bump. So at this point, is there anything that the U.S. can do to this guy who is so clearly defying America and, and in fact, insulting Biden and hurting the Democrats ahead of the uh, November elections in the hope that he can help engineer a comeback of Donald Trump? Well, I think it's more basic than that, Ian. I think it's an attack on the United States and NATO. I mean, it, you know, at this point, he's 
he's effectively funding Putin's war in Ukraine by lifting the price of oil so that Putin really doesn't lose much with the embargo going on against him and sanctions. So he's clearly cited politically, not just it's not just for OPEC plus, uh, you know, in their production. He's cited with Putin very clearly um, an enemy. So, you know, going back to the 70s, when we took over security of the Gulf, he's just saying, well, it's too bad. You guys protected us for these, you know, 50 years. You've you fought two wars for us in Iraq, essentially for for the Gulf, for the Gulf Arabs and Saudi Arabia, because they can't defend themselves. Uh, you've you've shed blood for us. But now it's a new game. We one want Putin to win in Ukraine. Uh, we want to strangle Western Europe and the United States with oil prices. And we want this Democratic administration to fail in this congressional election and the elections in 2024. It's very clear he's he's taken sides. And, it, we're you know, what can we do about it? Uh, you could put an embargo on Saudi Arabia, I suppose, of some sort, stop weapons sales, um, you know, take all sorts of financial measures against the royal family, and in particular MBS. Uh, but will we? I doubt it, because we're addicted to cheap oil, and the Saudi, the Saudi still have the reserve production capacity, and we're afraid to destabilize Saudi Arabia anyway. So they they literally have us over a barrel. And when you talk about they, is it more than MBS that hate us? and that are willing to defy the U.S. after, as you point out, they fought two wars against Iraq to save Saudi Arabia's bacon, and particularly the first Gulf War. You know, Saddam Hussein had taken Kuwait and could have taken Saudi Arabia, but for the United States. So we, we literally saved the royal family. Oh, we saved him. I remember in the first Gulf War, we found out the Saudis had no filters for their tanks. So they couldn't even put their armor into play. Uh, and that's why it was so important for, for Bush, one, to in, invade Kuwait and take it back and, and destroy from the air Iraq to protect Saudi Arabia. There was no other purpose in that war um, other, other, other than protecting Saudi Arabia. They cannot defend themselves they, they, they against Iran or anybody else or even Iraq until today. Uh, but it's it's it, but they do hate the United States at, at a very deep level. Don't forget, fifteen Saudis got on those airplanes on nine eleven, killed more than three thousand Americans. And until this day, the Saudi government is not furthering the investigation. We know that from all the released um, you know investigation reports. They simply won't let us interview the people that recruited the fifteen Saudis. We don't know where the money came from. Uh, the key witnesses were never turned over. There's been no indictments. So on 9-11, 2001, Saudi Arabia, somebody at some level attacked the United States, threw us into a war on terrorism, an ill-fated war. Um, and, and they just they have not helped. They have not helped. And that's just a fact. I mean, it, I realize the grievances go both ways, but we're talking about Saudi actions, not American. So would that suggest then that there is no 
countervailing forces within this vast royal family of thousands of princes, many of whom have been jailed and beaten and had their fortunes confiscated by Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, who was acting on intelligence provided to him by uh, Jared Kushner, on who his enemies were within the royal family. And we know what he did with them. So has he sufficiently intimidated the royal family that there's nobody left inside Saudi politics that could conduct a coup against this vicious punk who's now thrown his lot in with Putin and Xi Jinping? I'd say he's coup-proofed the country. I wouldn't know that for a fact. But if, if anybody would overthrow him, it would be the National Guard, which is made up by tribal elements. But people I know, you know, close to that set said there's no will to get rid of this guy. And as far as the royal family goes, I can't speak for individual princes, um, but he's protected himself. As we know, it's a totalitarian regime, uh, you know, total surveillance on the population and the press and everybody else and the princes that that could oppose him have been arrested or died or disappeared or still in jail out in the middle of the desert. All those Gulf countries are that way. There is no rule of law. It's the royal family and they destroy anybody that dares stick their head up. Um, So I don't, I don't foresee a coup. I foresee him uh, forging ahead in this alliance with Putin and, and you have to look at it from his perspective. The person that, that will protect him uh, is Trump and, and Kushner, the son-in-law and the family. And the same goes for the UAE. There's a close ties between the Trump family and UAE. They are going to fund indirectly uh, the re-election of Donald Trump. And if he wins in 2024, it, it, you know, and of course, if you know, there's a lot of things that could happen between now and then, um, they, they will want everything. Uh, and, and also the fact that OPEC plus between Russia and Saudi Arabia controls the world's economy. We, there's nothing we can do about it. Kissinger suggested at one time invading and holding the Saudi oil fields, which is sort of a fantastic notion. I don't think we'll ever do that, but you know, short of that, we're going to have to let Mohammed bin Salman call the shots. So, in effect, you're saying that Jared Kushner and Trump are traitors, that they're throwing their lot in with well, this crew who's against the United well, States. Of course, there, there's no other way to describe it. If you take money from a hostile power, and you know, if if, if we're fighting in Ukraine, essentially backing that, and a former ally is throwing their weight behind the enemy. That's, well, of treason, it's, it, I guess is a word you could use for that, but it's certainly, uh, it, it isn't loyalty to an ally, an ally of long standing. So what can the Democrats do? It, their fate and the fate of the country. I mean, if people are paying a lot for gas in the beginning of November, the first week of November, we know that, they're not necessarily sophisticated voters. And for all the gains of activism from women uh, appalled at the Supreme Court's abortion decision, etc., they could all be wiped out easily by the 
fact that the price of gas is high and they will blame it on Biden. Is there anything that the Democrats can do? Because at stake is the future of American democracy. We know that Trump is a wannabe authoritarian, and if he comes back, forget about it. It's all over for the United States. Well, the first thing I would do is strategic petroleum reserve. I would release all sorts of oil to temporarily drive oil down. And then I would go to the Gulf countries and 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 break with OPEC. They don't have much surplus production, but what they do, it should be brought in as fast as we can. And we should do everything we can to isolate Mohammed bin Salman because he's doing minor damage to what he could be doing like this winter or later next year. Uh, he has to be totally uh, isolated, um, sanctioned even. And, you know, it's time we played one. It's time we cut back on uh, using fossil fuels. That's clear. If anybody can't see that now, they never will. Uh, and number two is we have to play hardball with the Gulf. Um, because if be, you, what you're saying you know, is if we don't do it now, it's going to get worse. If Putin and Xi Jinping and MBS win and the Republicans come back and even if they come back and take the House, you know they're going to side, they're going to cut support for Ukraine, they're going to spend the entire time with you know impeaching Biden and going out having investigations into Hunter Biden, etc. So that's what's in store for us, and then they'll lay the groundwork for Trump coming back in 2024, and they'll finance that. The writing's on the wall, is it not? Well, the writing, well, you know, this trial of Barack, and, 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 you know, he was clearly an agent of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I mean, it's, it's, they had the emails, the rest of it. Everybody around Trump represented Gulf money. It's all about money for the Trump family, and they will simply sell it out. Um, and, and Trump will turn on any critics, and yes, he will. He will back out of the Ukraine conflict, and it's hard to say which way this will go. But, you know, will it move into Poland one day? Why not? Uh, Trump said he has no use for NATO. So Article 5, defending other NATO nations, is, is out the window. That's So, you know, this could go any way. Uh, I mean, it's, it's completely unpredictable. But we know who's allied with Putin and Saudi Arabia and China. And who isn't? And... You know, Biden has just got to quit messing around. He's just got to quit messing around. It's 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 an existential war. I know that sounds very alarmist, but it's it, an existential war is being fought in Ukraine. Not just the potential for nuclear exchange, but for the control of Europe. And MBS and Putin intend and have said they intend to make an assault on. Western European civilization in the West, including the United States. That's clearly what he's doing now at this point. And there's, you know, there's one Saudi apologist after another that's going to come. It's on the Saudi payroll. Most of these institutes in Washington are on the Saudi payroll or the Emirati payroll. Uh, they will come. They will just, and it doesn't matter whether Democrat or Republican, will stand up for the defense of Saudi Arabia. It's so few people in Washington are willing unwilling to tell the truth about that country. 
even when they chop up alive a Washington Post contributor, it, it still didn't shake the Saudi lobby very much. And I could go through the names, ex-colleagues, State Department. They all leave the CIA and go work for Saudi Arabia. And they are, they are, are doing the analysis and the rest of it. And, and the mainstream press, um, that's who they, they draw on, are, are paid Saudi shills. Well, Biden has to know this more than anybody. Plus, he went over there and did the fist bump with FBS against the advice of many and was humiliated in doing so, but now is being even more humiliated by the fact that rather than help uh, lower the price of oil, MBS is doing the opposite. And Biden has egg on his face. So surely he has a motivation. Somebody has to lay out what you're talking about because it's as clear as day what's going on here. Well, it's a threat to Biden because you're absolutely right. I mean, the Republicans have said they're going to pull a Benghazi on Hunter Biden. I mean, I think it's fairly clear that Hunter Biden could brought up, be brought up on tax charges and the rest of it. But that's not what they're going to go after. They're going to paint Biden as part of the same corruption. There's no evidence that he, he benefited from his son's business. I mean, isn't the first time the son of a president or of a senior politician is has misused the family name. This isn't unusual, but it's what the Republicans will do, and they will destroy Biden and his family uh, and the Democrats going into 2024. I mean, the, the, the strategy here on the part of MBS and Putin is very clear. They're, they're playing for keeps, the long game, um, and we're still living in yesterday that you know Biden thinks he can go deal with MBS. I mean, the man's a murderer. So why he ever went there and thought he could cut a deal with him, I don't know. Whoever advised Biden to do that at the State Department should be handed his head. Well, just in closing then, uh, Bob Bear, could Biden go public and have the kind of conversation we're having, you know, lay it all out about what's really happening here, who, who our friends are and who our enemies are, not just abroad, but at home? I think he should, but I don't see that in his personality. And the people around him come from the same milieu as other Saudi defenders. Um, and we are just we are just afraid to take on Saudi Arabia. Always have been. And you do 9-11, Khashoggi, you know, right down the line. I mean, how much more evidence do you need? When you take a bone saw, an electric bone saw to a Washington Post contributor, we know it was ordered by MBS and he gets a pass on that, that tells me a story. Well, Bob Bear, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Bear, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude, and he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN, and his latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. We can take a brief station break, back discussing the attack on Putin's signature bridge on his birthday and his vicious retaliation against Ukrainian civilians and infrastructure.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Simon Schuster, a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and foreign policy. And his latest article at Time is Inside the Ukrainian Counter-Strike that Turned the Tide of War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Schuster. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're just back from Ukraine, and I take it you're about to go back. So what do you make of this strike on Putin's signature bridge that joins Russia with Crimea and was a vital supply route to the uh, Russian forces in the south of Ukraine, particularly in Kherson, which is where a decisive battle is underway? It uh, has already resulted in really vicious counterattacks that happened, of course, on Putin's birthday, and he clearly is incredibly angry, but he's striking back at Ukrainian civilians and infrastructure. So is that the next stage in this war? I I don't know. I I think it's consistent, the attack on the bridge um, over the weekend, um, the bridge that connects mainland Russia to Crimea, um, is consistent with uh, Ukrainian war planning and and uh, tactics for some months. Um, I, I spoke about a month ago to um, the defense minister of Ukraine um, for an interview the last time we spoke. And he told me, I, I remember very clearly, he said, we will continue reaching the Russians in Crimea. Um, they they see it as a fundamental goal of, uh, of, of the war for the Ukrainian side to liberate all the territories that Russia has occupied including Crimea. So he told me that that is going to be uh, that's going to remain a major target for them. Before the attack on the bridge, they had been striking um, military installations, some infrastructure, but mostly military bases, um, military targets in Crimea, um, in, including uh, a um, command command post of, of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Um, so I, I think it's fairly fairly consistent, but it is definitely more dramatic. So the bridge that was hit over the weekend, um, you know, is is uh, Putin's kind of the 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 jewel in his imperial crown. I think is how he would see it. It cost a fortune to build because he gave the contract to one of his old buddies, who's now a, a construction tycoon. The thing cost like four billion dollars. It's you know um, uh, he personally went out in 2018 and drove a truck across it to to inaugurate the bridge and open it. So it was it was quite a quite a symbolic uh, target. Um, but I, I think for the Ukrainians, the symbolism is there. But also it is um, an, a dimension of the Russian supply lines. So that bridge is used to to bring. Uh, military supplies to the forces that Russia is using to uh, that Russia used to invade Ukraine in February, and and uh, those supplies are continuing to fuel the Russian war machine. So the Ukrainians certainly saw it as a legitimate target. Um, and in terms of just very quickly, in terms of the response that we've seen from Russia, just in the last 24 hours or so, it's it's devastating. It's tragic. It's sad. Um, uh, for the Russians, it looks like desperation. I mean, it's it looks like flailing. There's there's kind of a death rattle element to it because 
you know, what are you doing? You know, they're spending half a billion dollars worth of uh, these supposed precision cruise missiles because they don't have anything else that can reach um, these civilian targets. And they're using them to kill civilians. I mean, they're they're hitting straightforwardly civilian targets. There, There's nothing military about that playground in Kiev or that pedestrian bridge that was hit. Um, so, you know, it, it, it looks it looks pathetic, uh, to, to put it bluntly, for the Russian side. And the mood that I've been hearing, the responses from my, my friends, colleagues, uh, and sources in Kiev is, this is not going to change a damn thing. Um, we're going to continue fighting. Um, this, the spirits are, I think, higher today than yesterday. Uh, it, it, it has a unifying effect for the, the Ukrainian people, certainly the Ukrainian military. It gives them a greater war fighting spirit. I think it proves a lot of the, the points that the Ukrainians have been trying to hammer home, namely that you know Russia is fighting a, a war of aggression against the people of Ukraine trying to annihilate civilians. Um, so I, I think that's even more that's laid bare even more for the world to see after these these attacks that we saw just uh, today. And Simon Schuster, in your article in Time, Inside the Ukrainian Counterstrike That Turned the Tide of War, you profile General Zaluzny, who is clearly incredibly effective at the head of the Ukrainian military. What's the plan now, do you think? I mean, they're getting close to encircling about 25,000 Russians who happen to be some of Russia's best forces in Kherson. Are they really trying to get as much territory back before the winter sets in? And once the winter sets in, will that freeze the conflict along this 2,500-kilometer-long uh, front? Um, I, I don't think it will. Um, uh, so certainly it, it slows things down. It, it's, it's harder to move. Um, I'm not a military expert, but this, this from, from speaking to Ukrainian um uh, military officers, including General Zaluzhny, yes, the the winter is is problematic. You want to get your your main battle plans um, uh, done by the time the the the, the freeze sets in. Um, but I don't think it's going to be a frozen conflict. the The motivation is just too strong on the Ukrainian side to to get back um, the territory that Russia has uh, occupied. Um, they're absolutely single single minded and determined in this. Um, in terms of the the tactics and the style they're using, you know, again, I'm I'm not a military expert, so General Zaluzhny, when we spoke, was trying to uh, break things down for me in layman's terms. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, the the, the strategy is um, to keep pushing. Uh, one thing that I think distinguishes him and his approach from the Russians is he does give uh, a lot of uh, freedom and leeway to the uh, more junior officers and commanders on the ground to make decisions about when maybe a tactical retreat is necessary or when is the right moment to uh, push forward. So he's he's not uh, unlike from what we've we've been uh, seeing the reporting out of Russia, where we have Putin reportedly giving direction directions orders directly to the to the commanders on the ground. That's a very unhealthy situation, from what I understand, for a, a military operation. Right, you you need to have eyes on the ground uh, who have the freedom to act based on what they're seeing. Um, and I think Zaluzhny allows that. So he, he's much more flexible, much more nimble, 
um, as as a commander than the Russians have have proven themselves to be. Um, and and the other key factor here that um, he and also the defense minister were very open about and indeed grateful for is uh, intelligence, intelligence from the West, intelligence from U.S. sources. Uh, the defense minister, when I spoke to him about a month ago, described uh, you know in some detail how essentially the the American or uh, West Western intelligence services tell the Ukrainians where the command post is, who's there. Um, and, and you know, and and the U.S. has been providing long-range missiles um, to strike those targets. So, so there's a lot of help coming from those kinds of sources as well. Ukraine is very um, open about that, not hiding it. Um, and you know, in, in terms of generally the what we've been seeing of these counteroffensives where the Ukrainians are pushing forward, it's not just a, a push on the ground with tanks and infantry moving forward. Usually, in what we saw before the big thrust forward up in up in the northeast in the beginning of September, before that, there were a lot of these targeted missile strikes against uh, Russian ammunition dumps, ammunition depots uh, on occupied territory in Ukraine, and and Russian command posts. So that was uh, Ukraine kind of weakening the lines, weakening the positions of the Russians in order to then try to push forward. Uh, I expect uh, General Zeluzhny and the Ukrainian armed forces to continue continue doing that. Um, they have said they're going to continue doing that, and I don't think winter will stop them. It might slow them down, but it won't stop them. Well, Putin has just replaced his head of the military in Ukraine with another general, and in your conversations with General Zeluzny, the head of the Ukrainian military, he apparently displayed his admiration for the chief of staff, the head of the Russian military, Gerasimov, who is now the nationalists and the war hawks, along with Prigozhin, uh, the head of the Wagner group, are now calling for both Shoigu, the defense minister, and Gerasimov to step down. Yeah, there does seem to be a lot of infighting on the Russian side. Um, so first, from from what General Zeluzhny was saying, so the, the Ukrainian top military commander who I spoke to, he surprised me um, in that interview multiple times. But one of the big surprises was he said, uh, I've got the collected works of my Russian counterpart in my office. I've read everything he's ever written. I've studied everything he's ever done. And, and uh, the Ukrainian commander, General Zeluzhny, said, uh, of his Russian counterpart. He is a brilliant um, theoretician of war. He's very good at what he does. And, and the Ukrainian commander had enormous expectations of him. So that, that was interesting to hear from the feedback I've gotten to the article um, from some uh, uh, military officers or, or people who are you know, military analysts, experts. That seems to be not such a surprising thing, actually. So it is it is wise in matters of war to know your enemy and study your enemy. And uh, the Ukrainian commander told me that he definitely does that. He was uh, you know, raised in the Russian Soviet um, military theory. Um, he has since expanded beyond that and, and tried to uh, adopt NATO standards and NATO approaches to warfare, uh, Western approaches. But but he is, he is an admirer, as he put it, of his Russian counterpart. Um, so the second part of your question, yes, there seems to be um, a lot of anger in Moscow toward the two leading figures um, in the military hierarchy, that's Defense Minister Shoigu and the uh, Chief of the General Staff, Valery Gerasimov, 
Um, both of them are under fire for how badly this war is going on the Russian side. But that's not necessarily good news because the people who are stepping up and, and uh, getting a more prominent voice within the Russian elite are even scarier than those guys. So the ones who are stepping up to criticize the military command are uh, people like uh, Ramzan Kadyrov or uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who are, I mean, I don't even know, they're more hawkish than Putin. They're more, they're, they're just um, borderline psychopathic. I mean, they're, they're the ones pushing for the use of, uh, openly pushing for the use of tactical nuclear weapons um, and, you know, calling for cities to be wiped off the map, things, things like that. Um, and this new commander that you mentioned, um, who has just been put in charge of the, you know, Ukrainian um, military theater, the, the whole kind of Ukrainian campaign, he um, is known for a lot of things, but but I think most recently the reason he's notorious is the uh, Russian carpet bombing of uh, Syrian cities during the, the Syrian war um, when Russia intervened there in 2015. That general, who is now in command of the Ukrainian um, campaign, he was responsible for some of these, you know, atrocious uh, barrel bombs. Uh, indeed, this this chemical weapons attack in the city of Ghouta in Syria. That's all him. Um, so it's it's not uh, an encouraging sign when Putin elevates that kind of uh, uh, notorious general known for just the most horrific human rights violations and puts him in touch excuse me, in charge of this operation in Ukraine. Um, that, 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 uh, that, that's a bad sign of, of where this war is headed. But of course, all the pressure on Putin coming from Pogosin and Kadyrov and the, the nationalists and the war hawks is pushing me in that direction. But the new general in charge of the Ukraine theater on the Russian side, uh, he's been in charge of the defenses of Kherson, and that hasn't been going well. So can you expect him to do any better? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, so he he seems to be more, from what we've been seeing of, of the reaction from these kind of really um, extreme right, extremely aggressive uh, voices on, on the Russian side, they have celebrated and welcomed this the appointment of this new general. So he seems to be more in that camp. Um, and uh, is he going to be more effective? I don't know, but I, I think he's going to be, um, you know, judging by his past, the, the, the way he's he's waged campaigns and wars in the past, he seems to be a, a fan of um, indiscriminate bombing of civilian uh, areas. Um, so, you know, take take that as you will. It doesn't necessarily mean he'll use the same tactics um, here, uh, but um, he's done it in the past, clearly has no qualms about it, and Putin seems to be rewarding him with this appointment, uh, dis despite the, the really dark history that this particular general has of, of uh, vi violating and, and massacring civilians in Syria and elsewhere. Well, Simon Schuster, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Schuster, who's a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, 
the Moscow Times and foreign policy, and his latest article at Time is Inside the Ukrainian Counter-Strike That Turned the Tide of War. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice saying it's something to me Oh